You're listening to Mythos, a storytelling podcast exploring folkloric realms. And this is Earthlore, a Mythos series that retells ancient myth and traditional folklore surrounding the cosmos, earth, flora, fauna, and natural phenomena. Eggs are an ancient symbol. The magical properties, burial rites, and folk beliefs surrounding eggs are many. Ancient Greeks and Romans placed eggs in tombs, and the Maori people of New Zealand buried their dead with an egg. Amongst the indigenous Aino people of Japan, women took eggs to present to their husbands or fathers, and then the eggs were mixed with seeds to be planted that year. The Ukrainian Pishanka, the painted egg, was used in Christian rituals from the 10th century. And in 17th century France, a new bride would break an egg when she entered a new home in order to ensure fertility. There is even a form of magic called umancy, or egg divination. In order to uncover secrets long forgotten or to make predictions about the future, the practitioner would, for example, break eggs into hot water, using the resulting shapes of the egg whites to shape their fey insights. Eggs, then, are not just ideas, but magically potent objects, rich in the stuff of creation, death, birth, and rebirth. Is it no wonder, then, that the cosmic egg, or primordial egg, can be found in creation myths around the world? In this episode, we will hear the creation myth of the Kalevala, the great Finnish epic composed by Elias Lonrot in the 19th century. The epic itself is comprised of both Lonrot's original material and the content of Finnish folk songs, with the creation myth having been derived from an existing cosmic rune, or a verse of sung Finnish folk poetry. The famous primordial bard Vainamonen will make his appearance in a deeply moving tribute to the intimacy between word and creation. Lonroth's own studies in comparative mythology revealed a parallel between Finland's creation story and that of ancient Indian texts. He saw that both India and Finland began with water as an initial element, with the world and the cosmos created from a primordial egg. In fact, the area of the world where the myth of the world egg is found extends from the shores of the Baltic across Central Asia to the islands of the Pacific. With this being the case, it is possible that the Balto-Finnic people encountered this story through contacts along the Silk Road, the famous Eurasian trade route that was active from the 2nd century BCE to the mid-15th century. For that reason, because of that possible connection, this episode will feature a cosmic egg myth from a Silk Road country, China, alongside the creation myth of the Kalevala. The story from China is from the Taoist tradition, and with its specific mention of the number eight in various forms, there is likely numerological significance, with eight and nine having prominence. And for more ancient myths and magical folklore surrounding the earth, flora, fauna, and natural phenomena, please consider supporting me on Patreon. 
and a heartfelt thank you to my current patrons who have continued supporting the podcast even though the time I'm able to dedicate to the podcast is limited at the moment. I am very grateful. Story 1. Pengu Anua from Chinese Myth In the beginning, where there are no beginnings, but where beginnings are all that exist, there was a primordial darkness that birthed the very idea of night. Our universe, free-floating, seemingly vacuous yet rich and deep. Rich and deep in rock and force and chaos. And deep in the folds of this blackness was an even deeper, even blacker thing, larger than the thoughts of gods, a behemoth thing, an egg, full of blinding constellations and winds faster than the speed of sound. Disorder screamed as the gales made yin and yang clash and clang together. Or perhaps it was more like the rubbing of yin and yang together with some kind of kinetic electric shock that stormed and bellowed. Stirring and mixing that wind mixed yin, ice cold, moon-loving, shadowy and feminine, with yang, solar, hot, sun-blasted and masculine. How a creature could be born in the middle of this cosmic melee is impossible to understand or describe. But a creature was formed, for 18,000 years, the inconceivable Zygot grew, amassed blood and bones, swelled and swelled, skin forming around the giant mass of muscles and sinew, hair sprouting from follicles larger than worlds. And this was Pengu, who all the while curled up like a baby in the black egg, a monstrous being with two horns and two tusks, who slept like an infant but with a magical axe beside him. Now, that 18,000th year was auspicious, full of promise, for as the yin and yang became increasingly balanced and ordered over that millennia of screaming chaos, Pengu awakened. The great orbs of his eyes like the spirits of rogue planets awakening inside a black hole. All was darkness and silence, yet rich in pause and possibility. And the great giant Pengu, the fledgling being of the universe, felt his consciousness probe the vast enclosure. Pengu began to move and writhe within this dark womb that defied his burgeoning thought and understanding. Such was his vast form and force that as he stretched his limbs outward from the fetal position, there was a cacophonous, brittle sound that punctured the silence, and the giant kept pushing and pushing at the inner walls of the great egg until the great ravines in the surface of the shell began to widen and widen. Then Pangu swung his axe, and the cosmic egg womb split entirely open. And as he swung that axe, he also split yin and yang. Yin sank and spread, manifesting as earth, rock, and soil. Yang rose, 
molten yet air-light. Yin's darkness birthed rich soil and seedbeds. Yang's brightness breathed atmosphere and sun blaze. But Pengu only felt the immense pressure, the great, beautiful, terrible force of Yin under his feet and Yang on the crown of his head. And such was the pushing, pulsating power of both that the great giant as vast as the great black path between universes. This immense being was terrified that the two halves might collapse. If they did, Pengu would be ensconced again, sealed into that womb of screaming disorder and blinding constellations, that vast cosmic egg full of storm and bellow. So, the great giant raised his vast hands to the sky and dug his mountainous feet into the earth and pushed and pushed. For 18,000 years, the deep ravines and the mountains of his arms, sinews, and muscles drove the sky upward 10 feet every day. And the seismic force of his pillar-like legs drove the earth downwards, 10 feet every day. And for 18,000 years, the primordial giant dispersed the auspicious and perfect power of the number 10 into earth and sky. And Pangu refused to stop, even when the fleshing out of his cyclopean arms and the prodigious sprouting of his giant legs grew by 10 feet every day, drawing upon inner reserves that seemed limitless. Yet when he stopped, when the dome of the sky and the great bowl of the earth became the expanse we know today, when the world was perfected to the power of ten, and yin and yang were firmly secured and balanced, the giant collapsed. He fell to the earth, feeling a kind of cosmic heat death in his bowels and his skull. He fell, feeling satisfied with his creation and wanting to give himself entirely to the emerging world. With one last great push of his will, this is what he did. His last breath became rain-fat clouds and world-traversing winds. His voice cascaded out of the great cave of his mouth and became thunder. The light of his mighty eyes streaked fiery around the dying orbs and passed through the black hole of the iris, and this became lightning. The transformation of his vast body continued, his fertile being transforming death into force. The giant's left eye rose from the great crater of its socket and burned and sizzled with yang until it became the sun. The right eye, magnetized with lunar yin, rose into frigid space and caressed the Earth's tides as it circled her. Then, when the light and force of his consciousness had passed into the cosmic realm, his body began to tremble and crack as if a massive earthquake had passed through him. His body broke and the vast contours became mountains and hills. 
With this breaking, his nutrient-rich blood ran between mountains and hills, dug deep beds, and became the mighty rivers of the world. With the great dispersal of his blood, his life force, his skin spread over the whole world and became land fertile with trees, grasses, flowers. His bones, too, spread far and wide with the vast world movement of his blood, and such was the density and weight of his primordial bones that they sank deep into the earth and became glittering jewels, beautiful crystals, and rich veins of minerals. His teeth, too, were so dense that they also sank and became precious metals. Finally, all that was left of the primordial pangu was his hair, horns, and tusks. But with one last great blast of wind, even these were dispersed, pushed out of the atmosphere into the great expanse of the cosmos. Hair, horns, and tusks became galaxies, swirling with light and rock and color-laden filaments of matter and gas. And for millennia, for ages, in which time cannot be counted, but time was all there was, the earth and the great cosmos emanated the beauty of a giant's wild being and the perfect balance of Luna and Solaris, darkness and light, earth and air. And the earth was a beautiful place, but also a lonely place, for Nuwa, so terribly lonely, Lovely Nua, all mother and longing, so deeply did she feel the giant's breath in the wind, his eyes in sun and moon, felt something whole and complete. Personhood, it could be said, in the great brooding body of the mountains, in the feeding blood life of water, felt presence like the skin contours of a beloved in land, grass, trees, and flowers felt this all so deeply, and felt such home in it all. Well, the mother goddess took the force of all this kinship, and longed for what she knew not what. Until one day, Nua felt drawn to the muddy banks of the Yellow River, and when she leaned forward to look into the water, she was startled, for a face was there. She reached out a single finger to touch the face, and when her finger met the waters, the face rippled with concentric circles. She gasped and then brought her fingertips to her own face and saw the face in the water do the same. Mother Goddess traced the contours of her graceful brow ridge, the perfect mountain of her nose, the downy nest of her soft lips. She had never seen such a thing. Her face and the eyes, great caves of glistening water, and with such a beautiful amber jewel with the blackest jet in the middle. And when the pit of her stomach took a plunge into such sad revelation, there was no one in the whole world who looked like her. She realized what the gnawing longing had been, what she felt when she stroked sunlight and felt held by water. Companionship. With the genius of impulse that mud and clay bring, 
she plunged her hands in the muddy banks of the Yellow River and began to shape, mold, and contour the mud, a living relic of the great Pengu's skin. And it wasn't just her hands and fingers at work. Nua's whole being, her whole heart, went into the shaping. The blazing sun and the softer moon glow, the expanse of air-spirited sky and the liquid flow of ocean and river. The kinship and balance of all life impassioned her artistry until there stood before her a tiny woman. And this tiny woman danced for the joy of being alive, her little body full of the largesse of water and light and sky. Her movements were rich, fertile, as dense and expansive as abundant fields and fish-laden seas. And deep, Deep was Nua's joy when the little woman said, Thank you, Great Mother, for the gift of my being and limbs and laughter. And Nua beamed her face alight with the joy of creating and belonging. And the Mother Goddess felt such a sense of expansion and oneness that she plunged her hands into the mud and shaped more of these beings whose voices and moving limbs and glimmering eyes reflected and expanded the kinship of her own being with Father Son and Mother Moon. The creative elation propelled Nua's mind and hands, and such was the immensity of this energy, this impulse, she realized after the first 100 living beings were made and dancing by the river shore that it would take forever and an eternity for even her, Great Mother, to create all that she wanted. So the Nua took a branch from a nearby tree, dragged it in the mud, and flung drops of it near the Yellow River. And the drops of mud formed feet, and as they ran, their shapeless masses became human beings, as if the very energy of their, of her living joy, could create its own shape. How long this took, no one can say, for the ways of Nua cannot be counted and timed so easily. But then, something happened that lay heavy on Nua's mother heart. One of the little beings slowed, became as sluggish as a mud-choked stream, and lay down on the riverbank. The great flowing beauty of this little one's breath shuddered and stuttered. A living light in their joyful eyes lessened like the moon behind mist. And then the stream of life seemed to ooze invisibly from their pores. For the little person then no longer moved or spoke or danced or sang. And when the being of Nua's own making became one again with the shapeless mud, the mother saw that her creations were mortal. But clever Nua, seeing the great life in these beings, this life that is so abundant that it creates itself, clever Nua formed male parts and female parts so that this life would expand and grow. Story 2 
the air goddess, and the cosmic egg, from the Finnish epic, the Kalevala. I, a bard of great renown, will reel off a tale of kin and sing a tale of kind. Long has my tale been in the cold. For ages it has lain hidden. I shall take the tales out of the cold, scoop the tales out of the frost. For brother dear, little brother, dear kith and kin, fair ones who grew up with me, we seldom get together and meet each other now. Hold hands now, fingers into finger gaps. I know how the tale was made. With us, the nights come alone, and the days dawn alone. And so is Vinamonen, the eternal bard, born alone. From the woman who bore him, from air daughter, his mother. For in the beginning, when the world was all primordial atmosphere and sea, there was a lass who was all air and flight, all holy solitude, a being of air who grew weary of coursing through the open sky, for what had been space and breath now felt like empty wastes. In her loneliness, flying through echoing ether, she heard a sound, a sound like the hush and breath of a great giant. Drawn she was to a sound that was no kin to air, but was certainly its kith. A sound with the shh of her own abode, but somehow heavier with a weight and girth that mesmerized. And the air lasts soared down and down, away from ether, away from her holy solitude, until she reached a, a line of sorts, a surface, like rain-laden clouds, but so very dense that nothing of air was left in them an ebbing and flowing darkness. And in wonder, the daughter of Ether launches herself upon the roiling water surface. The girl child of the upper regions soared over the great expanse of sea. She trailed fingers and toes in the sun-sparkled surface, somehow like her home of azure sky, yet so other than. But then a shifting dimness coursed over the blue, turning it a slate gray, and the air lass felt her being grow heavy as she floated on the sea surface. There came then a sudden pummeling of hard-fisted wind from the east blustering and belligerent weather. The wind lashed, whipped, frenzying the ocean so that its smooth surface soon became devouring waves and the daughter of Ether was tossed to and fro by the great ocean, until a mighty wind, as much air as it was water, blew full and lively straight into her womb. Her womb billowed with tempestuous elements of spirit and water. Now, the air lass was water mother, and she bore an iron forge of a womb. For seven hundred years she carried. For seven centuries there was no child born, just endless, roiling life expanding in her belly. The air lass, now water mother, rolled, 
swam, cried and whimpered in flaming birth pangs and heaviness in blood and bone. So great was this belly burden that she cried to the old man, the upholder of the sky, for help. With every shock and tremble in the mysterious cave of her being, she cried out for help. And for a time she despaired. It would have been better to remain air-light and sky-free than to shiver and wallow in the dark seas with a burdened womb. She longed again for the wind to whisper lovingly against the surface of her gliding form. She hankered for mouthfuls of ecstatic cloud. The water mother remembered her flights of fancy as a child of the ether. And as her soul grew heavy with grief, so her womb grew heavy with potent tones of not now, not now. In her heart and belly, there bellowed the low tones of stifled hope. But then, while all seemed singularly baritone, the water mother heard something like air whistling and screeching through a small crevice, yet with the earnest insistence of a living, breathing thing. First, a tiny flash of gray, white, black, and deep, deep green swooped past her face. The tiny flapping and honking screech calls reverberated over the lonely slate waters, and there, circling around the water mother, was a duck, a mother bird in search of a nesting place. The duck mused, looking upon the restless, landless wastes, and saw not a single stable place to build her nest, to shelter her young. Nothing except billowing waves, no home amongst the moody, shifting waters. The duck called so feebly amongst the chaotic leviathan, a kind of squawked terror that came from the heart of one expecting mother to another. So then, the great primordial mother raised her knee out of the water, a wounded healer, pierced to the heart by a thousand thwarted expectations, lifted up a nesting place, a haven, lifting towards the heavens. And the water-glistening bird with its golden eye saw the knee, thought it to be a grassy knoll, and settled down upon it. And so one mother became earth and soil to another. And so shall it always be. Now, the lovely bird built up its nest from floating wooden debris and laid eggs, dense and heavy in a way that only elemental things can be. For six of the eggs were of gold, and one egg was of iron. And when the duck laid her mother down in fat warmth on these eggs, it was as if the fires of molten worlds now blazed on the water mother's knee. A great crucible, molten in its intensity, scorched her kneecap, and the water mother jerked her knee from the searing pain. And so the eggs dropped into the dark and roiling sea. And water mother floated and watched as the sea became a primordial cauldron, as by some mysterious alchemy the egg fragments transformed. What was before just watery chaos was now amniotic, itself a womb. And Water Mother watched for a great length of time, 
More than the lives of many mortals watched as the bottom halves of the eggs formed the earth and the top halves expanded into the celestial dome of the heavens, which before had been her eternal expanse. The whites of the eggs, garnering strange magnetic magics, became the ever-changing yet ever-steady moon. The mottled parts became the stars, and the blackish parts became rain-pregnant clouds. And with awe, Water Mother watched as the golden yolks took Mother Duck's downy warmth and ensorcelled it until those yolks formed one blazing sun. Yet, even then, as the world took on its Pangean shape, her womb remained full, age without end, it seemed, for she was weary of floating in this great sea. What had been enticing and new was now empty waste. Until one day, in that great expanse of time, the airlass, the water mother, felt a stirring in her limbs. Something other than air and sea called with wordless energy, tugged with armless insistence. And so she raised her fair and mighty head, espied the fullness of times with an inner eye, and began her earth-moving creation. To have seen her would be to have seen poetry, the music of the spheres. And then she began her creation and brought the world to order. On the open ocean surface, on the far extending waters, wheresoever her hand she pointed, there she formed the jutting headlands. Wheresoever her feet she rested, there she formed the caves for fishes. When she dived beneath the water, there she formed the depths of ocean. When towards the land she turned her, there the level shores extended. Where her feet to land extended, spots were formed for salmon netting. And where her head touched the land lightly, there the curving bays extended. Now the isles were formed already. In the sea the rocks were planted. Pillars of the sky established lands and continents created, rocks engraved as though with figures, and the hills were cleft with fissures. But still unborn was Vinamonan, still unborn the bard immortal. Indeed, the soon-to-be creator of words and world longed to emerge from the womb, to be free of his dark confines, until he could take it no longer and began to move the fortress gate with his finger, used his toes to unlock this bastion of bone. And when he pushed his feet through the doorway of flesh, blood, and water, he entered the great outdoors and tumbled into the sea. For five years he floated, swam. From one amniotic sack to another he had come, his limbs and mind yearning for something he could not describe. Until finally, finally, 
he placed his feet upon something so solid he cried aloud. The soles of his feet flexed, kneaded the earth that somehow smelled like his mother. He espied undulations, endlets, and curves that somehow had her shape. Nameless, treeless though it was, this land murmured and hummed with presences that longed to be called forth by a poet. Then, Vinamonen lifted his eyes to look at the moon, to study the stars and to plot the points of the great bear. And when day rose, he watched with reverence the emergence of the golden sun. And as he did, a flood of images, creative prophecies of moving things and sprouting things, flowed into his new and unhindered mind. Soon, soon, there would be singing, and his words would sow and plant, would stir the latent fruitfulness and growth of Water Mother's creation. Soon, very soon. Thank you for listening. In this episode, I referenced Keith Bosley's translation of the Kalevala for the general outline of the story. The poem of the Water Mother's creation was quoted from W.F. Kirby's translation. Next up, in episode two, in the beginning part two, we will explore the prominence of primordial giants in ancient Norse and Indian creation myths. To keep the Earth Lore series going, please consider supporting Mythos on Patreon.